You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. This one's for Kelly, who wrote to let me know that I'm going to lose him as a reader. If I don't stop talking about politics, you're a columnist and advisor for mostly the gay community, Kelly wrote. If you want to keep your straight conservative readers, lay off politics. Stick with what you know, and that is gay sex mostly. First, at the very real risk of permanently losing Kelly, fuck Donald Trump and fuck the Republican Party. And while I know I have conservative readers because conservatives have been threatening to stop reading my column for nearly three decades now – I'm not going to leave politics alone, not until politicians learn to leave sex alone. But so long as politicians are out there trying to regulate who we fuck, who we love, who we marry, who we are, what we put in our bodies, what kind of sex education we get, whether we can access birth control, whether we can get abortions, yeah, I'm not going to be able to lay off politics. And for the record, Kelly, more than 80% of the letters that appear in Savage Love and an overwhelming majority of the calls here on this podcast are from straight people and about straight sex. Kelly, darling, if something is about you 80-plus percent of the time and it feels like it's not about you at all, that says something about you, and it doesn't say anything good. All right, a personal note of thanks before we start this week's show. A big thank you to everyone out there who has already voted for Joe Biden, and a huge special thank you to everyone who has waited in long lines to vote in early voting states. People are out there waiting for three hours, six hours, longer. I've seen a bunch of stories about these long lines, the waits in Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Texas, and I am amazed at how often these stories are spun as uplifting stories about democracy in action. Take the story at NBC News on October 12th. Early voting just opened to Georgia, and the lines were epically long, more than nine hours long. How did they frame that at NBC News? People waiting in line were feeling optimistic, according to NBC News, and everyone was being very patient and this was a good sign for turnout. The long lines were a good sign for turnout. They even quoted one person waiting in line as saying, I love it. Get out and vote. You had to keep reading this story. You had to get to the 28th paragraph, the 28th paragraph before you read this. Studies show that race is one of the strongest predictors of how long a person waits in line to vote. You don't say NBC News. Well, in fairness, you did say eventually, but you really buried the lead. People of color, black people in particular, are forced to wait in much longer lines to vote. They're closed. their polling stations in their neighborhoods. They have fewer voting machines, fewer poll workers so that they will get discouraged and give up and leave without voting. Racism. Voter suppression is racism. And we had to wait until the 28th paragraph for you to point that out. Stories about people, almost all of them black, waiting in line for hours to vote. By design, not by accident. Those stories aren't telling us anything good about the American spirit or democracy in action. It's not a feel-good story. It's a feel-bad story. Like the story about a guy who walks five miles each way to work every day and does so for years. And then one day the boss gives him a car. And now that guy doesn't have to walk to work anymore. 
the framing of those stories always encourages us to think, oh, that's nice. God doesn't have to walk to work anymore. We're never encouraged to ask why someone who has a full-time job in America can't afford to buy a car or a bike or a bus ticket. Long lines to vote in urban areas and other places where racial minorities are concentrated are evidence of successful voter suppression efforts. Not everyone can stay in line for nine hours. People have kids. They have health conditions. They have jobs. Our democracy, like the post office, is literally being disassembled in front of our eyes. These lines are a scandal. Reporting on them should reflect that in the headline, in the lead, NBC, not in the 28th fucking paragraph. If Joe Biden wins the White House, it will be thanks to African-American voters who overwhelmingly backed him in the primaries and voters of color in the general election who are going to overwhelmingly vote Democratic. Democrats, if they take power in Washington, need to do something to roll back voter suppression efforts, to undo voter suppression efforts, to suppress voter suppression efforts. The right to vote for all Americans needs to be restored. But paradoxically, Nothing can be done to roll back Republican voter suppression measures if we don't get out and vote despite these voter suppression efforts. If we don't show up in numbers too great to ignore or too huge to rat fuck, if we don't shove our votes down their fucking throats, it's only going to get worse. And in case you're still listening, Kelly, fuck Donald Trump and fuck you too. All right, coming up on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, disability awareness consultant Andrew Gerza comes back on the show. We take a question about a pair of disabled people having sex in public, and then we talk about a couple of his new projects. That's on the magnum. You can subscribe to the magnum at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, more guests, no ads. Subscribe at savagelovecast.com. Andrew, and questions, lots of questions. All that coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan. I am a 29-year-old female who has recently admitted that she is bisexual. I've been with a man for almost 11 years, married almost five, and we married Catholic, Catholic marriage. So the views of a marriage are pretty strict as far as open versus closed. But over the past two years, after being diagnosed with a uh, mental disorder, the truth of my quote-unquote real self has really come out, and it's just been hard. So I, I did finally admit to him that I'm bisexual and want to try having a sexual relation with a woman, not necessarily a relationship, but just the physical. And it's a hard no for him to open our marriage up to that. So I'm just stuck between a rock and a hard place with not being able to pursue this part of me, being with my husband, who I do love very much. But there's also that part of me that I'm going to be 30 soon. And do I want to live my authentic self or do I sacrifice this huge part of me to stay with him? Other frustrations are not only can I not pursue that sexual part of my life, but our sex life right now is very monotonous and not satisfying whatsoever. And because of the medication I am on, it takes me forever to get off even on my own. So I'm not having sex with a woman like I want to. Uh, Marital sex is at an all-time low, and I can't even get off on my own now. So it's just three big strikes for me, and not necessarily looking to get anything answered, just, uh, you know, support and a 
hang in there from you would be appreciated and from the community here. Well, you have my sympathy and my support. You are trapped between, it seems, multiple rocks and multiple hard places. There's the mental health challenges you're struggling with, the medications you're on, the interfering with your ability to climax and your sexual orientation, newly discovered or newly embraced or realized, and the commitment that you made and your husband's unwillingness to renegotiate the terms of your marriage and allow you to have an experience, at least one, with another woman. He gave you a hard no to opening up the marriage and a hard no is a hard no. But someone gives you that kind of hard no and you aren't willing to issue an ultimatum in return, if you do this, I'm going to leave you. Okay, well, if I am not allowed to do this, I'm going to leave you. Well, then you're stuck in this place where you can't be who you are sexually. You can't live the full authenticity of your bisexual sexual orientation. It's interesting how you how you put that, that you're not able to to, to live or be your authentic self because you can't have the relationship that you have with your husband, the marriage you're in now, and be allowed to have sex with a woman also. If I or anyone else were to suggest that someone who's bisexual and is in a monogamous relationship was somehow denying or being denied their authentic self, I'd be called out or called in or canceled or something, one of the C words. But I often hear this framing, not from biphobic people, but from bisexuals who've recently come out and came out after having made a commitment almost invariably to an opposite sex partner and they come to the realization that they're bisexual. Maybe they've never had a same sex or same gender experience and they want to have that but they made a monogamous commitment to an opposite sex partner, an opposite gender partner and they're frustrated because staying in the relationship means never being able to have this experience, never being able to act on their same sex or same gender attractions but they don't want to leave the relationship either and they will frame this as a dilemma about the authenticity of their lived bisexuality. And it might be better if you framed this rather than a conflict about your bisexuality as a conflict about non-monogamy or monogamy. And it might be better and perhaps diffuse the situation with your husband slightly or, or actually maybe it would make it worse if you frame this not as a conflict about your sexual orientation but a conflict about being in a closed relationship, that you no longer wish to be in a closed relationship, that you would like to be in an open relationship and you would like to extend to him that right that you're asking of him, the right to sleep with other people. And perhaps maybe he would hear that. If what you went in there with was because I'm bisexual, I should be allowed to sleep with other people because you are monosexual. You should only want to or be allowed to sleep with me. There was nothing in it for him, nothing that appealed to him about opening the relationship. It just was a, a threat that you might run off with the lesbian circus if you could sleep with other women and he wasn't allowed to do what you would be allowed to do, which is sleep with other people because he's only attracted to women. Maybe that's another line of attack. Probably a bad expression when you're talking about interpersonal relationship dynamics. You don't want to suggest that people are attacking each other, but maybe that's another approach to this conversation with your husband. 
But to get what you ultimately want, if this is a hard no for him, you're going to have to be willing to leave. And if you aren't willing to leave, you have no leverage in this situation. You're 29 years old. You've been in this marriage for 11 years. Maybe your marriage has run its course. Maybe you should think about what leaving would look like. And like I've said, a marriage, a relationship doesn't have to last forever to have been a success. If you can stick the dismount here, if you can part in a loving way, if you can stay friends, particularly if you're co-parents, you don't mention any children, but if you're co-parents, you can stay friends and be good co-parents together. You can look back on this 11-year marriage as a success. But if you can't live without him and you don't want to risk losing him by calling his bluff, by rejecting his hard no, by meeting his hard no with a hard no of your own, well, then you may never be able to act on this. You may never be able to be with a woman the way you would like to be with a woman. Unless, of course, you're willing to cheat. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. Early 30s, cis, queer, polyamorous woman from Australia here. I recently started talking to a man I met on field about the possibility of starting a 24-7 dom-sub dynamic with him. We've had some really great thought-provoking and hot conversations around how this could look. Obviously, at the moment, due to COVID, it would be some time before we can actually meet. My unease lies in that he has a partner, which is totally fine. I'm polyamorous myself, but they have a don't ask, don't tell arrangement. And I understand that these arrangements are common and can work for people. But my concern is how do I know if this is the truth or if he's just cheating on his partner? He hasn't given me any reason to believe that he's lying, but I just don't know. What do you think, Dan? And do you have any advice on red flags for me to keep an eye out for? Is he cheating? Someone tells you they have a DADT arrangement, don't ask, don't tell, with their partner allowed to have sex with other people, just not supposed to ask or tell. So therefore, you can't ask their partner if you're allowed to have sex with them, if they're allowed to have sex with you, and their partner isn't going to tell you. So the question comes down to whether you think this guy and anybody you meet, anybody out there, anybody else out there who's met someone who says they have a DADT arrangement, how do you know if they're telling the truth? Well, you got to trust your gut. A good way to test your gut is against their other statements. If they've lied to you about other shit, well, then they're very likely lying to you about the DADT arrangement. If they're lying to someone they've just met, odds are about sex. Odds are they're lying to their primary partner about sex or lying about the sex they're allowed to have with others by their primary partner. Some people have suggested uh, that folks who have a DADT arrangement with primary partners record a short video with their partner saying, hey, we're open. This is okay with me. Please don't call or email me or reach out to me on social media because I don't want to hear about it. This is a DADT arrangement. But then, you know, you have to verify that it's actually their partner in the video you've just been shown and not a cameo video featuring a formerly famous actress. And also complicating whether or not those sorts of videos could be created by partners, a lot of DADT arrangements don't come from exactly joyful places. Many DADT arrangements, if not most, are tense compromises. It's somebody going to their partner and issuing an ultimatum because their partner has a really low libido or there are things, maybe 24-7 DS dynamics, that their partner isn't interested in that they can't live without. And, you know, it becomes a throwdown. It becomes, uh, I get to do this or the relationship is over. 
And the other person says, all right, go, go do it. Just I don't want to hear about it. I'm not going to ask you about it and I don't want you to tell me about it. That person who agreed to a DADT thing from really what is an unhappy place who where it's a compromise and not necessarily a happy one is unlikely to record a video for their partner to assist them in finding other people who might want to sleep with them. So I don't think the suggestion that people keep making that folks in DADT arrangements film these videos so they can show other prospective partners that their primaries have consented is going to be workable in most instances where there is a DADT agreement. So caller, again, how do you know for sure? In the absence of that kind of video, which most people with DADT arrangements with their partners are not going to have on their phones, you got to trust your gut. And if your gut is telling you that he's lying, then it's not a DADT arrangement. The fucker's cheating. Hey, Dan. Couple from the Midwest here. We recently restarted our Tinder account and were unceremoniously booted within a couple of hours. Uh, We logged out of the app, logged back on, and our profile had been deleted. And I I, after doing some Googling, it seems like Tinder doesn't allow couple accounts anymore. And we're sort of at a loss. We're like, okay, now what do we do? All the other apps that seem to be out there are like not quite as well established. I'm curious if one, you know why Tinder removed the couple option? Because it was an option up until last year, I believe. And then two, if you have any suggestions for other apps. So the previous caller who mentioned meeting a guy who's in a relationship that he claims is open, D-A-D-T, they met, previous caller met that guy on Field, F-E-E-L-D, which is an app for people seeking thirds or thirds seeking couples. There are other apps like it, threesome, threeder or thirder, three fun. I'm curious to hear from any other listeners out there who've used one of these apps or used all of these apps in pursuit of unicorns or pursuit of couples, what you thought, which one you thought was best. Most of the online reviews that I've read or articles I've read about people using these apps, most seem to come down on the side of field, of field being the best one and the one that has the most couples and the most single seeking couples lurking on it. So you might want to give field to try. As for what's up with Tinder, based on my reading around just a little bit, Tinder has never allowed couples, that it's always been only one person can have an account on Tinder and accounts that feature more than one person get zapped. So the fact that a couple of years ago you were able to use Tinder as a couple just leads me to believe that maybe you were flying under the radar and they've improved their algorithms or they've hired more people to police and zap accounts like yours and you guys got zapped. So you might want to move over to Field or Threesome or Thirder or one of the others that's designed for couples seeking thirds. Good luck. Hey, Dan. I am a 34-year-old woman from Alberta, Canada. I have a abusive ex-boyfriend from 12 years ago. We were together for three and a half years and he was fairly emotionally abusive and it ended with me trying to leave the house and he went to close the door and accidentally my hand was on the door and he cut my hand and the cops were called and he went to jail and 
So over the last 12 years, he has sent me multiple messages apologizing and saying how sorry he was and how he regrets everything and hoping that I had a good life and this and that. Um, so we started talking again in the last month. No chance of getting back together, but he's always been on my mind. and I've always been on his mind and I kind of want to see him again, like not as, you know, as a, as a romantic partner, but just to, I don't know, see him. And all my friends are telling me this is a terrible idea. And I don't know, like, I feel like I really need to do this. And do you know why that is? Any advice that you can give me? Because I really feel like I need to see him again. And I'm not sure if that's going to feel any feelings that we might still have for each other or what that's going to do to me or to him. So do you have any words of advice for me? So just to be clear, you're asking me why you want to see your abusive ex from 12 years ago. If I might know why you would want to see him again. And I can't answer that question. I don't know exactly why you want to see him again. I can speculate. Maybe you want closure. You say you're 34 years old and you're with this guy for three plus years and you haven't seen him or the relationship was 12 years ago. So you were both very young when you were in this relationship. And maybe there's just some part of you that is wondering what could have been if he was less emotionally and in that one instance that may or may not have been an accident, physically abusive and you're morbidly perhaps subconsciously, romantically curious about what might be possible. At the very least, you want to see him to forgive him in person, which it sounds like you've already done in the contact that you've had in the last month, which means it was just about forgiving him, letting you know that you'd heard and accepted his apology and he could finally move on with his life after contacting you again and again and again over the last 12 years, which itself is a little disconcerting. That mission's already been accomplished. So... Since you've invited me to speculate, I wonder if there's not some desire here to see if you still have feelings for him. And I'm going to join your friends in warning you about getting back together with someone who abused you. Now, you say he abused you emotionally and there was this one instance where you wanted to leave the house and he physically prevented you from leaving the house and then shut a door in such a way that your hand got caught in it and you were bloodied and the police came and he went to jail. That is serious. That's not he beat the shit out of you over and over again. It's not he punched you in the face over and over again. But it is very concerning about an escalating level of physical abuse or the assertion of physical control on his part over you. And yeah, that itself is a red flag. That's a sign of, again, escalating abuse. And I'm glad that you got out of this relationship and I'm glad you got away from him and I'm glad it ended 12 years ago. Are you glad you got away from him? Are you glad it ended 12 years ago? I think those are the questions that you need to wrestle with. And I keep thinking about your friends. You say your friends are all advising you against this. Are any of the people who are currently your friends who are advising you against this people who knew you when you were in this relationship? Were they witnesses to the emotional and in that one instance, the physical abuse you endured from him? And if they were, I think their words may carry a little bit more 
wait here. If they witness the abuse and they are concerned that if you meet back up with this guy and a lot of abusers are really charming. That's how they get people to hang around long enough to be abused and to endure abuse and keep hoping against hope that the abuser will get better because when they're great, they're so great that when they're awful, maybe you'll put up with it. It's a stratagem that abusers employ to keep their victims in their orbit and maybe your friends, if they witness that dynamic, are super concerned about you being sucked back into his orbit. But if your friends now weren't your friends then and they didn't witness it and all they've heard is emotionally abusive and they've heard about this night when he slammed the door, wouldn't let you leave the house, your hand was injured, you were caught, you bled, the police came and he went to jail, they may be advising you from a place of perhaps an overabundance of caution. They may be rounding up the abuse to something worse than it was. Now, again, I'm speculating and I think if that's the case, perhaps their words carry less weight. In the end, you're a 34-year-old adult woman and you can see whoever you want to see. If your friends are worried and they were there and they saw it all happen and they helped you get out of this relationship and they're worried about you bringing this abuser back into your life and the potential chaos of your getting involved with him again and the damage that could do to you emotionally and physically, listen to them. I think you should still listen to them. I think you should listen to me and think about why you want to meet back up with this guy to do, again, what you've already done. You've already forgiven him and he hasn't moved on. He keeps reaching out, keeps apologizing. He keeps trying to put himself back in your life. And that itself, when it comes to an abuser, is a red flag. But you're an adult. You get to make your own decisions. Maybe there's a half a loaf compromise here where you could have an extended phone conversation with him but not meet up with him in person, not meet up with him physically and maybe you could get the closure that perhaps you're after and if not the closure you're after from that one phone conversation, an answer. Maybe you could get an answer to the question you put to me. Why do you want to meet up with this guy in the first place? Hey, Dan. Late 30s gay male in the South and longtime Magnum subscriber. I've been in a relationship for nearly a decade now with a great guy who I adore. We've lived together for a long time, and for all intents and purposes, we live our life like a married couple, except that we aren't. Not married, anyway. He knows that it's something that I want. He also knows that based on our history, where every step of our relationship up to this point has happened because I pushed for it in some way, that I want him to be the one to ask to marry me. We've talked about it a bit before, although the most recent conversations uh, mostly happened two years ago at this point. Dan, I'm just tired of every milestone being the potential for when he might ask me, and then it doesn't happen. Every birthday, anniversary, Valentine's Day... Last year, before COVID, uh, luckily we got to travel internationally, and I had thought he might ask me then, and it didn't happen, and I was disappointed. Recently, um, I did bring it up again, saying that, you know, it might be a nice thing to plan a wedding for next year, as something for us and our friends and family to look forward to after the COVID crisis is gone, and it would fall on our 10th year to being together, and the only thing he said is that it probably wouldn't be gone by next year. I kind of got the vibe at that point that he didn't want to talk about it, and I moved on. What do I do? The few times we've talked about this before, he's mentioned that he's an old-fashioned guy, and he wants a ceremony, 
But I tend to think part of his aversion to getting married might be that he doesn't like the idea of having to be in front of everyone and be the center of attention for the day. Plus, his family is a bit conservative, although I've been ingratiated into their or integrated into their life for some time now, and they seem to love me and accept me, and I feel the same way towards them. This isn't a deal breaker for me because I love him so much and I love our life together. And I don't want to risk all that just for the sake of a ring. But I also can't help but feel slightly rejected when I think about it and his seeming lack of desire to get married. What should I do? Propose to him already. You've essentially proposed to him again and again and again when you've proposed to him that he should be the one to propose to you and nudged him and nudged him and nudged him. And nudged him and nudged him and nudged him. You were doing the proposing. You were floating this proposal, the proposal being he should propose to you as you'd done all the other heavy lifting in the relationship, perhaps asking him out in the first place, perhaps asking him to go steady, asking him to move in with you. You've done all the asking and on this, you would like to be asked. It has been a decade. He is who he is and he is not going to change. You are going to have to keep – Obviously, clearly, you're going to have to keep doing the asking. And something's at issue here. He knows that you would like to be married. He knows that you would like to have a wedding. He himself has said he would like to have a ceremony and it's not happening. The wedding isn't happening. He doesn't want to plan it. You suggested planning it a year from now. Give everybody in the family something to look forward to after the COVID crisis is over. And his response wasn't, yeah, that's a good idea. His response was, it might not be over then. So something's up. Maybe it's his conservative family. Maybe it's not him who has hangups about being the center of attention at a big gay wedding, but his family doesn't want there to be a wedding. This has happened. You know, marriage equality it has happened where families that were seemingly supportive of their gay children's relationships and welcomed same-sex partners to holidays and, and meals and family gatherings – suddenly had a big fat problem when there was going to be a wedding, when there was going to be a marriage ceremony and outed themselves at that moment as still bigoted, as still seeing a difference between their children who were in opposite sex relationships and what those relationships meant and what marriage meant for those children and their children who were in same sex relationships. Or – or it could be that he is self-conscious and doesn't want to be the center of attention at a big fucking thing. I know that when Terry and I first started talking about getting married, he called it the Broadway floor show of our love, that he didn't want a Broadway floor show of our love, you know, us marching down the aisle and standing at the altar and just a big fucking to-do about us, not him. It wasn't him. It wasn't him then to attract that much attention to himself. So we got married in somebody's living room in Vancouver, British Columbia on the spur of the moment with just our son as a witness and a next-door neighbor who got dragooned into it as a witness. Maybe that kind of marriage would appeal to him. So perhaps you go back to him and you talk not about the proposal that one or the other or both of you are going to make but about what – the consequence of that proposal is if you put on the table that if he proposes to you, you can have a small, informal, just a couple of friends down at City Hall ceremony and maybe then a dinner party for the families later. And at the dinner party, you will announce that you finally did it 
and got married. And then you can keep an eye on his conservative family and see how they react. He might go for that if the issue is self-consciousness. If the issue is his family, yeah, you've got more to talk about than just who's proposing to who. Hi, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 20-something-year-old female calling from the East Coast. My question is less about romantic relationships and more about maintaining friendships with people of different political parties. I've recently moved in with my good friend only to find out that they're a Republican. And because they are a 20-something-year-old gay Puerto Rican male, I absolutely thought that he was joking when he told me he was a Republican. It wasn't until I saw the Trump flag in his closet that I realized how serious he is. We moved in together in August, and as we get closer to the election, things are becoming more tense. At least, they are more tense for me. I've taken every opportunity to talk to him about why he would support this orange asshole, and most of his responses come down to, the economy is doing well, or it was before corona. Nothing seems to change his views, not the 200,000 dead, the racism, the criminal charges, the Supreme Court justice who wants to end Roe versus Wade, hating the military, avoiding taxes, None of it. I've always believed that we can agree to disagree on small things like pizza toppings or what temperature the AC should be on, but not on whether or not people should have health care or should have a livable wage or should have the right to choose. Besides my roommate, I do not have any other Republican friends. And honestly, if I didn't know him personally and care about him and get along so well, and if I didn't literally live with him, I would have cut him out of my life immediately after seeing that flag. My friends have said that a Republican vote doesn't really matter because we live in a pretty solid, consistently blue state. And my boyfriend says that the more I push the issue, the further my roommate will lean towards the right. But this isn't just something that I can ignore. And honestly, if Trump wins, I don't think our friendship will survive. Basically, my question to you is, how do I maintain a friendship with someone who supports this monster? How do I separate politics from person? And is it even a good idea for me to do that? I feel so strongly about this, and I don't want him to think that I'm okay with him voting this way. And also, how do I live with him without killing him before Election Day? So he's out of the closet, but his Trump flag is in the closet. So he knows. He knows he has something to be ashamed of. It used to be his sexuality. Hopefully he's not ashamed of that anymore. But as a gay man and a gay man of color, he should be deeply ashamed of his support for Donald Trump. There's been some interesting writing about support for hump among Latinos and Hispanics and a lot of white liberal progressives are shocked that Trump is polling better now among Latinos and Hispanics than he was in 2016. Given everything that we've seen, given what we saw in 2016 before he won the election, lost by 3 million votes, popular vote count, won the electoral college. But what we saw before he – when he announced his race was him accusing Immigrants, Mexican immigrants in particular, of being rapists. They're not sending us their best, said literally the worst person on the planet about Mexican immigrants documented and undocumented. And the demagoguery around everyone from south of the U.S. border, from Trump and his White House – literally the whitest of White Houses over the last four years. It's shocking. So when you meet somebody who's Latino and Hispanic and they support Trump, much less somebody who's gay and Latino and Hispanic and support Trump, it's mind-boggling. And again, a lot of white liberal progressives look at that and think, how can this person of color, how can this BIPOC support this clearly racist piece of shit? 
And what's interesting here is that a lot of people who are Latino and Hispanic don't identify as people of color. They identify as white. Trump may not identify them as white. A lot of Trump's base, people in Trump boat parades, people on those sinking fucking yachts might not think of them as white, but they think of themselves as white. So Trump's racism, they don't feel impacts them or is about them or relevant to them. Or it may, if they think of themselves as white and have bought into white supremacy and are racist themselves, it might appeal to them, his racism, because they don't think it covers them. Which reminds me of – I went to India a few years ago to report a piece for National Geographic and I kept meeting people in India, Indians, who supported Donald Trump, who thought Donald Trump was amazing and wonderful because – they were Hindu and they hated Muslims and Donald Trump hated Muslims. And I was flabbergasted and I kept saying to these otherwise lovely people I met that a Trump supporter and Donald Trump himself could not tell the difference between an Indian Muslim and an Indian Hindu, could not tell the difference between a Hindu temple and a mosque and their hate for – Brown people who weren't Christians extended to them too. And so maybe they should think twice about supporting or loving Donald fucking Trump. You're in the same position here where you have to talk sense to your roommate. If not as a person of color, as a Puerto Rican, look at how fucking Trump failed Puerto Rico after the hurricane. Reason with him as a gay man, Trump has instituted so many policies attacking the LGBT community and is about to install a Supreme Court justice who's going to vote to overturn marriage equality and Roe v. Wade. It's a perilous time. Why would a gay man vote for Donald Trump? Tiny percentage of gay men are going to vote for Trump. Why would a gay guy, why would some fucking cocksucker vote for Donald Trump? Well, sometimes I think gay people who aren't internalizing their self-hatred, who aren't trying to destroy themselves for being gay, externalize their self-hatred and try to destroy other people for being gay. I think that's what's at work with a lot of gay conservatives. They have taken their self-loathing and turned it around and who and what they loathe are other gay people that they feel judged by, rejected by or implicated by if they are – anti-gay, anti-sex, that they've internalized a lot of homophobia that they haven't rooted out, they may feel that supporting someone like Trump despite being gay makes them a better kind of gay, just like those gay guys out there who think that they're better than other gay guys because they don't have anal sex. I'm better than other guys because I'm voting for Donald Trump. I'm not a single issue. Anyway, I'm sure you've said all these things to your roommate. This isn't even your question. Your question isn't what should I say to him to win this argument, to speak sense to him. Your question is – how do you maintain a friendship with someone who's going to vote for Donald Trump? And I don't think you do. I really feel like this is a time when we have to draw a line and say you aren't going to be accepted by good and decent anti-racist pro-LGBT people if you're voting for this man who has demonstrated to us and the world over and over and over again that he is a dangerous fucking bigot and a fascist. 
I feel like people who are voting for him have to live with some consequences. The rest of us have had to live with the consequences of their vote for him in 2016. The idea that they shouldn't have to pay a social price for supporting him now seems insane to me. They should pay a social price. They shouldn't pay with their lives. Please don't kill your fucking roommate. Please don't – no violence, no political violence, please. That's what they're cooking up. Trump is encouraging political violence, is stoking his base to head out into the streets with their AK-47s a la this Kyle motherfucking teenager from Illinois that they're lionizing that who shot and killed two people after crossing state lines with a gun and they raised $500,000 for him. Ah, yeah, r- political violence is their thing, not our thing. Don't kill your roommate. Cut your roommate out of your life. Move the fuck out. Tell him he can't have a Trump flag in his closet and you in his life. Hello, Dan Sabajan team. I'm getting in touch from Europe and I'm getting in touch because I take my children to play at 25 Park where there's other children and there's also a group of disabled people that hang out in there. They have intellectual disabilities and um, two of them are clearly in a relationship and are getting it on on the park. They are all over each other, tongues, hands, peeping, squeezing, groping. The other day, in fact, um, she put a hand back in between her legs and he was fingering her until she came and then he put his fingers in her mouth. And this is all happening at five o'clock in the afternoon in a public park. Inappropriate. But I don't know what to do about it. I don't know if I should approach them or I don't know. I wouldn't call the police on them because I don't think they realize how inappropriate this is. But I don't know. They're turning us kids and, you know, us parents and kids into warriors. And I don't really want to see this. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Andrew Gerza. He's an award-winning disability awareness consultant, the co-founder of Handy, a company that will be bringing out a new line of sex toys designed for people with hand limitations. And he is also the host of the podcast, Disability After Dark. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing, Dan? Uh, good. Um, these have been challenging times for everyone. I imagine it's been extremely challenging for disabled people. Yeah, it's been it's – a, it's a really – big shift in how we have had to navigate our world just generally. But I think for a lot of disabled people, it hits even harder because we realize very quickly how many people don't understand how important it is to social distance and protect us because a lot of us are more susceptible to to getting sick and it's just really scary. Especially scary for disabled folks like you who are dependent on others for care. So it's not like it's possible for you to completely isolate yourself. Yeah, it's. Re- I mean, I see maybe four or five different people a day, and they've all been tested and checked, and I mean, they're okay before they come into work. But still, there's a fear of like, oh, I don't know, like, there's no way that I can fully socially distance myself from somebody. Well, I'm glad you're you're doing well and that you haven't been as unlucky as our president and and contracted COVID during all of this. <laughs> well, I mean, I <laughs> I have feelings about the president. 
getting COVID, but I'll reserve those for a later podcast. Yeah, I have feelings about that too, uh, and I'll probably save it for an intro. Um, before we get to the, to the question that I wanted to, I really wanted to hear your perspective on. Since the last time we talked and before the world shut down, you made your porn debut. Can you tell me about that? Yes, I did. I made my porn de- I made my porn debut for um, Davy Wavies Himeros.tv. He reached out to me and said, you know, we want to, we're having our two year anniversary. We want to have amateur people recreate some porn on our site. Would you want to do it? Because I know that you have wanted to do stuff around disability and porn for a long time. So you're the first person I thought of. And I was like, okay, cool. Like I'm, I'm very sex positive and I'm very comfortable with my body. So I, I was really excited too. And I, I contacted my friend, John Shield, who does, porn and I said do you want to do this with me do you want to do a shoot and he said yes and we just kind of we did this really fun shoot one afternoon and it really challenges you know this notion that so many able-bodied people have that disabled people don't have desire don't experience desire also aren't desirable and so this kind of representation in porn where so many people go and, and get an impression about you know what is possible and what, you know, the breadth of things that are desirable or desired is important. And it was really kind of groundbreaking, the porn that you made. Yeah, I mean, I feel it was really groundbreaking for a couple of reasons, for all the things you just said, but also because, you know, it shows a man who is a wheelchair user how I would get out of bed, how I would be put into bed by the person helping me, how I would, you know, how all that can be a central experience. And I we spend time together before filming talking about where my wheelchair would be placed and why it's important to have it in the shot and how, how, you know, my wheelchair is a part of this too. And my disability needs to be a big part of this. So we really spent a lot of time making sure that just because I, just because we were having sex on screen didn't mean that we couldn't also talk about disability. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really, really, really powerful. Uh, and again, where can people who want to check out your porn find it? Davy Wavy's site. If they go to himros.tv and they, they purchase a membership from there, they can then get the porn. It was a bonus scene for that, that website, so it's on there. All right, so let's talk about this question. So the woman is in a park uh, with her kids and there are other kids around and there's a group of disabled uh, adults who spend time in the park uh, and she says some of them appear to have developmental disabilities and two are clearly in love and are fucking around in front of kids in full view of the kids and she thinks it's inappropriate and I kind of think it is. Like if an able-bodied person was fucking around like that in front of kids, that wouldn't be appropriate either. What do you think's going on here? And I don't want to tip my hand too much before I, before I let you run with it, but I, I suspect an institutional failure. But what do you think is going on here? I think that, you know, the first thing I'll say is I think sex for everybody is good. And I think people with developmental disabilities and intellectual disabilities deserve the right to express their sexuality. Of course they do. But I, I would agree with you that, where they're doing it and how they're doing it is inappropriate and shouldn't be happening in a park in full view of kids. I think that it needs to be handled rather delicately because you don't want to approach the disabled people when that's happening because that that may not be okay. You also maybe, you know, I was thinking about this and my first thought was, well, you call the police. But then 
I understand that also many intellectually disabled people are shot by police. Very vulnerable to interactions with the police. You know, yeah, very, very vulnerable and very, very dangerous. So it's a tough one. I would agree with you that it's an institutional failure. If I were her, I would look to perhaps my council person, somebody on a council in, in like municipal government there and be like, hey, this is happening. I just wanted to bring it to your attention. I think that them being sexually expressive is great and important, but can we find a way to talk to them about, you know, how that's happening? I would look for somebody who maybe manages and helps them manage their day, like a personal care attendant or somebody that maybe where they live, or I would, you know, maybe when the, when the sexy time is done, I would ask them, Hey, where, where do you, where do, where, where do you live? Can I, can you show me where you live? Can we talk about that right. a little bit and see if she, if she could speak to someone who helps them manage their day? Because I think it's, and I had trouble, you know, listening to it, trying to figure out what to do because I want to say that everybody deserves the right to express their sexuality. But if I was in a park and I decided that I wanted to, you know, pull out my genitals, that would also be inappropriate. So I think it is inappropriate, but it just has to be handled with, extra care. Yeah, where, where my head goes is they may, these developmentally disabled adults may be living in a facility where their right to be sexual isn't respected and they aren't given the opportunity in a more appropriate space or at a more appropriate time to express themselves sexually. And so I kind of feel like, and maybe, you know, your advice to approach a, you know, a council member or a, a representative may be a good place to start. But again, as you also just suggested, if there's a caregiver there, you approach the caregiver not as a scold and not as, you know, an angry citizen or an angry parent, but as an advocate for these folks to yeah. say they need obviously alone time. Are they getting it where they live? Do you, does the institution that you represent provide, you know, recognize that they have a right to be sexual and make those opportunities available for your charges, if that's not an inappropriate way of putting it, who need it? Because they're doing it here and they shouldn't be doing it here. When and where are they allowed to do it at a more appropriate time, in a more appropriate place? And, and I think that's what I would tell the, the caller is to go in there swinging recognizing that these adults in the park are probably being failed a little bit up the river from this event. They're being failed where they yeah. live before they get into the park and finger fuck each other in front of your kids. And that's where the real problem is. If they're being failed, you know, upstream a little bit, that they're not being allowed a better time and a better place to do this. And, you know, if I was never allowed to be sexual, where I lived and I would seize whatever opportunity I could get when I could get it to be sexual. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree with all of that. And I think, you know, they may also live, they may not live in a, in a, in a supported living home. They may also live with their family who may not have the resources to provide them sexual education geared towards people with intellectual disabilities. So I would also maybe try to find out their living situation and see if, if, they do live with a parent or a family member, just generally going to talk to them and be like, Hey, this is happening. Maybe you didn't know, like maybe, maybe we can find a way to find you resources to get assistance for them to learn. Cause maybe what's happening is they've just not been educated. So many people with both physical and intellectual disabilities are not properly educated on, 
on sex. So mm-hmm. when they have these feelings, as we all do, they just act because they've not been given, like you say, the chance to be sexual, but also the education behind it to show what's appropriate and what's not. Is my advice or, or is my impulse to you know approach the caregiver a little paternalistic? Should the first line of attack, although it's not an attack, it's an, you know, you're engaging with a fellow human being to be approached the adults who are behaving in this way? I think obviously I would wait until they finished. Well, obviously, yes. <laughs> when they finish. Yeah. But to approach them and, you know, maybe they will tell you that they have no other place, no other time, no other opportunity. And then you can take that to the caregivers or the parents uh, and advocate for time and space and opportunity being provided for them so they don't have to seize the time in the park in front of your kids. Yeah, I mean, I think the first, I think I would approach the person first and try to try to talk with them because because I think when you, if the first instinct is to approach the caregiver or the family member, even like I said, the council person, you're taking away their agency to decide what they want to do. Um, and to, to say, you know, you're a human being and I respect you. If at that point you realize that they, they don't fully understand, or maybe they don't have the intellectual capacity at that point to, to engage with you, then I would consider looking into a council person or a caregiver or a family member. In addition to everything that you do, and you do so much, including hosting your podcast and uh, creating Handy, you have a book coming out, a collaboration, a collection called The Handy Book of Love, Lust, and Disability. Tell me about that. Yeah, I'm, we're super excited about it. Just to give you a brief overview on Handy. Handy is a company that my sister and I created to put pleasure within reach for people with disabilities, specifically for people with hand limitations. And we're on a mission to create the first line of sex toys for and by disabled people. So that's kind of what the brand is. And then when we were doing all this research to create our toy, because we realized that hundreds of millions of people worldwide live with hand limitations, people were also telling us stories about how it was hard for them to access sex, about how they've been told really great or not so great things about their sexuality and their disability and how, you know, being disabled and trying to receive pleasure or mastery was really hard for them. So we got inundated with all these stories from people all over the world wanting to share their experience of sex and disability. And we thought, well, why don't we turn that into a, into a book? So we curated 50 people from all over the world and we asked them things like, what is the best thing that someone's ever told you about sex and disability when they would send us a quote and we would we put it in the book or we would ask them what is tell us about how grief and loss around disability impact your sexuality and they would give us a quote and we put it in the book and we just found that so many of the quotes we were getting were so raw and real and I think what's really powerful about this collection is that we haven't seen this kind of discussion around sex and disability before it isn't so much about the mechanics of sex where most people want to go when it comes to disability, it really unearths and shines a light on the, the kind of emotional part of sex and disability that we don't often hear so much about. When is it coming out? It comes out. Hopefully I don't want to speak too far in turn because, because you know, COVID in the world, right. we're hoping the end of November, we're hoping the end of November pre-orders are live right now. So if they go to, that's handy.co and click on the shop link. 
there's pre-orders for an audiobook partially narrated by me, a hardcover, and an e-copy of the book. And that's that's handy.co, T-H-A-T-S-H-A-N-D-I.co. I.co. And all of the proceeds from the book are going to actually go towards funding the first sex toy. So when you buy a book, you're actually making sure that the toy will be in in the hands of more people, which we think is so great because finally there's a toy for and by disabled people. Andrew Gerza, disability awareness consultant, co-founder of Handy and host of the Disability After Dark podcast. Thank you so much for all you do. And thank you again for coming back on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dan. Anytime. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old cis female living in Chicago, Illinois. So recently, I've started dating again, and it's been a new experience for me as I've never fully committed myself to a search for a partner in my adult life. I've been seeing this guy, and I'm very attracted to him. He's smart, funny, a good listener, and it seems like we could be a good match. But On our last date, he dropped the fucking bombshell that he voted for Trump in the 2016 election and plans to vote for him again. I was shocked because he did not seem like the type at all. And I told him as someone who is active in the queer community, has trans friends, black friends, and just the fact that I'm a woman as well. How the fuck could I see you again? But then he sort of surprised me and said he is pro-choice and he has trans and queer friends as well. And I guess he feels Trump is a moderate and sees Trump's failure to pass any sort of moral litmus test as political and not amoral. He made the argument that if there was a better Democratic nominee, he would vote for them, no problem. But I've just never met anyone with his sort of politics because he says he's a socialist and he was sympathetic to Bernie but then votes for Trump. It just doesn't make any sense. I hate myself because I feel conflicted. I like him and I want to see things, see where things go, but I don't know if I have the mental strength to convince him to vote for someone else, although I think I could. Um, he's very long-winded in his rhetoric for supporting Trump, and it's weird because he's fucking smart. It's just such a pain in the ass to find someone decent on these apps And then find out they fucking voted for Trump. I know you'll probably say dump him, but I just wanted you to know that I jokingly told him I'd give him anal if he voted for Joe Biden. Anal is too good for anyone that's voting for Donald Trump. Fuck this piece of shit and fuck his argument or don't fuck this piece of shit and don't let this piece of shit fuck your ass. This argument that if only the Dems had put up a more acceptable nominee, he wouldn't be voting for Trump. That's like – The abusive spouse who says, if you didn't make me so mad, I wouldn't be hitting you. This guy that I don't think you should see again and I think you should tell him why you're not going to see him again is punching his supposed queer friends and his friends who are people of color and his friends who want clean water to drink and air to breathe, punching them in the face and saying, well, it's your fault for making me so mad. It's your fault for not nominating a Democrat that I could see myself voting for. But you know what? Even if they'd nominated Bernie in the end, even if we, the Democratic Party, had nominated Bernie – we – even if the Democratic Party had nominated Bernie Sanders in the end, your asshole friend who supports Donald Trump would be constructing an argument in his head that got him off the hook – 
that made it so he didn't have to vote for Bernie. And although he has socialist leanings, he's he would be rationalizing voting for Trump. Whose first big action uh, in a, after signing a bill that made it possible for people who were severely mentally ill to get their hands on guns was to sign a massive tax giveaway to millionaires and billionaires, as Bernie would say, and screw the working class and the middle class. Trump, who in 2016, I'm just ranting now, ran on being the kind of Republican, a different kind of Republican who would protect Medicare and Social Security, is now trying to defund Medicare and Social Security through his payroll tax holiday that he would like to make permanent that funds Social Security. So this guy is lying to you. He is rationalizing away his racist, sexist, anti-queer, anti-choice, anti-clean water and clean air, anti-democratic, pro-fascist vote for Trump so that he can have you in his life, so he can continue to have his queer friends. And I'd like to actually meet these people, a lot of people out there who claim to have queer friends who do fucking not have queer friends, so they can still have them. Or convince them that, that if they're the intolerant ones, if they won't be his friend after he votes for Trump. Or they're the intolerant ones if they won't let him fuck her ass after he votes for Trump. Do not let him fuck your ass. Even if he votes for the Democrat this time, he doesn't deserve to get your ass to fuck your ass after having voted for Trump the last time. Hey, Dan. So here's my question. After 20 years of monogamy, my husband and I embarked on the adventure of an open marriage about two years ago. It has been glorious on all fronts. For me as a woman exploring and celebrating my sexuality and for us as our couples to be reunited um, sexually and having this adventure together. So I've taken up regularly with a guy who's a dream boyfriend. We've been together from the start of my non-monogamy. Um, and in that time, other guys have come and gone, but he's been the constant. He's also in an open marriage. Both our spouses are cool with our arrangement. We enjoy each other intellectually, physically, and emotionally. Boundaries are in place and respected. It couldn't be better, except. Since June, I've been immersed in the racial justice movement. As a white woman, I admittedly am late to the party, so to speak. Now I know better, so I do better. I educate myself. I use my voice to advocate for change, attend marches, and donate. The guy I'm dating is apathetic to the movement. He despises the current administration, thank goodness, but he thinks the protest and the quote-unquote trouble of Black Lives Matter movement has gone too far. We've had a handful of spirited discussions which end with mutual respect and no real hard feelings. I've come to, come to understand that uh, we are all racist living in this society. It's in the air we breathe. So I'm not questioning if he is racist, but is he anti-racist? He doesn't outright discriminate or hurt anyone, and he doesn't deny the problems of our society, and he is not ignorant. However, as a white man of influence and high privilege, he's not doing anything to promote change. White silence is violence, right? So here's my question. Am I contributing to the system of white male supremacy by being in relationship with a man who benefits from said system and isn't committed to changing it? Since this question occurred to me, sucking his dick, which is usually my favorite sex act with him, seems complicit in a culture of creating pleasure and power to white cis hetero men. And again, I'm not sharing my whole life with him, and breaking up with him isn't going to change his lack of participation in the movement. Did I mention that he is incredibly hot and our sex is off the fucking hook? I don't want to give him up, but I don't want to undermine my efforts to create a more equitable world. Does it even matter? 
All right, just right out of the gate, there is a lot of non-white, non-cis, non-hetero dick out there that you could be sucking. And if you feel uncomfortable sucking this guy's dick, if sucking this guy's dick makes you feel complicit in white supremacy or the cis, white, hetero patriarchy, you can stop sucking this guy's dick. You can find some other dick to suck. You can find somebody else to be your secondary partner. I got to say though that this seems a bit much. You you sound like that person who recently converted to Catholicism who's more Catholic than all the Catholics. You in June say your words, you got religion about Black Lives Matter, about anti-racism and you've been marching and demonstrating and donating and all credit to you. I support Everything that you're doing. I haven't been at the protest myself. I'm older. I have really shitty lungs. I've tried to be really careful about COVID, but my husband and I, we've donated to bail funds and other organizations supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. I support it. There are people, though, who have raised objections to some of the protest tactics that have emerged, including African Americans, including black people. The New York Times had a big story recently, headlined some protests against police brutality, take a more confrontational approach. And they profiled a man named Terrence Moses, who is uncomfortable with some of the actions being taken by Black Lives Matter protesters in his neighborhood, in Portland, on his block. And he is an African-American man who works for a nonprofit agency that helps homeless people, mostly people of color in Portland, Oregon. And he was uncomfortable with some of the tactics. So I don't think it necessarily proves that the guy whose dick you've been sucking is a racist or not even not anti-racist enough for you to continue sucking his dick that he's uncomfortable with some of the tactics. You might want to remind him that in all movements, there are excesses and because of social media and because of the motives of right-wingers, Every time there's an excess in the movement for Black Lives Matter, we hear about it. We see it. It gets pushed in front of us and it's warping our perception of these protests, the vast majority of which the research has been done, 97 plus percent of which have been entirely peaceful. And if we saw, you know, the videos of, of excesses, you know, people screaming at people who are just trying to eat their dinner and surrounding them in Washington, D.C., if we saw those excesses, uh, in proportion to the, the peaceful demonstrations, it, our perspective wouldn't be as warped. You can work on him. That, that's what I'm, I guess I'm trying to say here. You got religion. You became more active. You committed yourself to anti-racism less than six months ago because you were thinking about it, because you were most likely interacting with other people who had been thinking about it longer than you'd been thinking about it. You could be that person for the guy whose dick you've sucked for the last two years, for this guy that you click with. You could be the person six months from now or even two weeks from now who's been thinking about this stuff for longer than he's been thinking about it, who brings him around. Somebody radicalized you. Somebody brought you around. Some argument, some activist, some article you read or some person that you interacted with, which is often how political change happens. It's a personal interaction with an individual face-to-face -face, that often brings people around. You could be that individual for him. If you don't cut him out of your life and spit him out of your mouth, 
because in October of 2020, he's where you were in May of 2020. Hey, Dan. I have a question about consent. So me and some of my guy friends were talking about consent, and um, the question arose of whether it is ethical to take a girl's hand when you're making out and you're obviously leading, potentially leading toward a situation and to move the hand down to your dick, for instance, in a situation. And I guess the reciprocal situation was, would it be ethical for a girl to move a guy's hand to her pussy or her tits or whatever? So my question to you is, is this ethical? I mean, obviously the, the intention here is to escalate the situation, maybe from making out, petting to like, sex or something obviously everyone agrees that if you try to make a move and it's rejected or it moved away or whatever that's the clear sign and it's a no-go but i'm just curious what you think is this an acceptable tactic or should this not be done at all i'm just interested in your thoughts you and some of your guy friends were sitting around talking about consent that's great that isn't something that a lot of guys were doing with their friends five years ago, 10 years ago. We've been having a conversation about consent, about the importance of consent. Really over the last 10, 20 years, it's been a huge part of the sex positivity movement. There's been a huge effort to get consent read into sex education programs and to put it in the forefront of people's minds. And I'm just really heartened, really thrilled to hear from a guy letting me know that he and his other guy friends, a bunch of straight guys, are sitting around having a conversation about consent. So gold stars for all of you. On to the question. So you're making out with a woman. You're holding hands. Is it okay to move her hand down to your hard dick, to escalate in that way? And would it be the same if a woman were to, you know, move a guy's hand down to her pussy? Well, the genders are different and the contexts are different. Women are often subjected to sexual violence, to sexual coercion, uh, and a lot of women arrive at you know a consensual makeout session uh, with a man that they would like to make out with having been pressured or even sexually assaulted by other men. And men rarely arrive at a makeout session with a woman having been sexually assaulted or pressured in the same way or coerced in the same way as most women have. So a woman moving your hand down to her pussy is going to be perceived very differently by you and your male friends in the context that you live than it might be or very likely would be by most of the women that you're making out with. So I think it's on you, it's on you guys to be a little bit more cautious with the women that you're making out with before you escalate in this way. That said, when people are rolling around, when people are making out, there is often a gradual escalation towards sex. And the cues are not always verbal. It's not always, you know, may I touch you here? May I touch you there? You don't always get permission verbally. Sometimes you get permission physically. If you're making out with somebody and they are grinding on you in a very serious way, well, that is a kind of nonverbal cue that perhaps you could place a hand somewhere you haven't yet placed your hand. And if you get a positive reception to the placement of a hand somewhere you haven't yet placed a hand, well, then you can Place a hand somewhere else you haven't yet placed a hand or take their hand and place their hand somewhere they have not yet 
placed their hand. But the difficulty there is that you have to be reading their cues accurately and not succumbing to wishful or dickful thinking in the moment. And for some very excited guys, that can be a problem. So I often recommend to guys that they use their words. That doesn't have to be unsexy. It doesn't have to be unsexy to use your words. You know, if you want to kiss somebody, I've talked about this before, my first kiss from a dude, he didn't just lunge at me and kiss me. We were hanging out. I think my head, my head was in his lap. We were just, you know, showing how comfortable we were as straight dudes with male on male touch that we weren't like having a homophobic thing because my head was in his lap and it was just us. We were alone and he said to me, what would you do if I kissed you? How is that not sexy? How was that not sexy for me to hear at that moment? I almost came in my pants. It was so fucking sexy. It wasn't, may I please kiss you, Mr. Savage? It was, what would you do if I kissed you? I was like, oh, kiss you fucking back. That's what I would do. You can do the same. You can use your words in a sexy way. Say you and your friends are, you know, in separate rooms, rolling around with new girls you just met. You're kissing. It's hot and heavy. You can take her hand and put it on your chest. You can take her hand and put it on your stomach, on your abs if you're a TikToker. And you can look deep in her eyes and you can say, can I put your hand somewhere else? Can I put your hand on my dick? Can I show you what you're doing to me? You want to feel what you're doing to me? You can say it in a sexy way. I'm sure that wasn't sexy for all of you. You have to listen to me say that just now. But you can find a sexy way to ask for permission, you can find a sexy way to ask to escalate. Indeed, asking itself is escalating. It's just escalating first verbally to make sure that they're down before you escalate physically. So you might want to practice that. Maybe you and all your guy friends can practice that with each other and post it all to TikTok for the rest of us to enjoy. And now let's read your tweets. Larcaster tweets regarding episode 728. Let's call losing your virginity making your sexual debut. Love the Lovecast. Thank you for loving the Lovecast. And I love calling it making your sexual debut because why should only rich men's daughters get to be debutantes? Fifty Shades of Orange tweets. Can we once and for all stop calling these hippo Christians pro-lifers? They're only pro-birth. They don't give a damn about those babies after they are born. No support for health care, Head Start programs, maternity leave, or economic equality. Uh, greed. Also love the term hypocristians. Let's just be sure to include paternity leave on that list too because there's no economic equality in the absence of sexual equality. Blood Duet tweets, I hate to be the but actually kind of guy, but in today's podcast, you said JFK was the first Catholic presidential nominee. While he was the first Catholic elected president, you forgot Al Smith in 1928. Ah, oh, how could I forget Al Smith? Prominent pro-Trump opinion columnist and ball washer Hugh Hewitt accused Democrats of harboring a deep and enduring anti-Catholic bias. But it was Democrats who nominated Al Smith, the anti-prohibition good governance, four-term Catholic governor of New York for president in 1928, first Catholic nominee for president of a major party. Smith went on to lose to Republican Herbert Hoover. And we all remember how that worked out. For the country. And finally, happy birthday to Lovecast listener and frequent Lovecast tweeter Rachel Conliffe, who should be celebrating her 30th birthday this week but can't because COVID restrictions prevent her from getting together with friends. So she's putting her 30th off until next year. So a very happy second annual 29th birthday to you, Rachel. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. 
Hi, Dan. This is a comment for the guy who called who just adopted three children with his partner, and he really is more of a poly lifestyle kind of guy. I agree with what you said, Dan, but I have two points to make. First, I'm a lawyer, but I'm not in exactly that kind of law. But her threat to take the children and leave may be an empty threat. If he's the legal parent on paper of these children, it is likely, depending on state, that he could get joint custody of these children with this woman. So her threat is could be empty. Um, he needs to speak to a real lawyer um, before he drops the bomb on his partner, on his wife, and just have his ducks in a row. Secondly, she sounds, the primary partner sounds a little bit controlling and awful. So she gets to have sex once a month. That's all he gets, her way or no way. And if he doesn't like it, if he falls out of line, she's going to take the children and leave. I think he should call her bluff. Hi, Dan. This is a response to something you said in the opening monologue for episode 729. You were referencing women who abort a child. And I think just given how sensitive this topic is and what that phrase might mean, it is important to note that you really abort a pregnancy. You don't abort a child. And the definition of a child really underlies a lot of the disagreement here. So I hate to be that guy, but I think in this case, words are important. Hi, this message is for the woman whose friend wants to travel out of state to meet a stranger from the Internet. I am a woman who has done that. But before I traveled out of state, I checked LinkedIn to make sure that he worked where he said he did. And we exchanged social media profiles and I saw the pictures that matched his stories. And, you know, I talked to several friends and we spoke on the phone. I FaceTimed with him and you know, knowing that I was headed out to see a person who was who he said he was did not detract at all from how magical that experience was. And it didn't take away any of the elements of surprise. The surprise was finding out how he smelled and seeing what kind of choices he made to show me around a city I'd never been in before. And actually, I felt safer to be myself because I knew what I was getting into than I think I would have otherwise. I don't think it's safe to go meet somebody without vetting them a little bit first. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question or a comment for a future show? There are two ways to get them to us here at the Sound of Podcast. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 2 starts on November 9th. It's another great collection, some of my favorite dirty movies from the first 15 years of the Hump Film Festival. Go to humpfilmfest.com and get your tickets now. And you have just a little under two months to make your own film for the 16th Annual Hump Film Festival. Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out how to submit a film and win big cash prizes. And Hump's sister film festival, Slay, is now up and running with two volumes of terrifying short horror movies from all over the world. Go to slayfilmfest.com to get tickets. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Andrew Gerza on Twitter at It'sAndrewGerza. And go to AndrewGerza.com to connect with his podcast, Disability After Dark, and learn more about Handy, his sex toy The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Artunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading, thank you for masking up, and thank you for voting for Biden.